Well, all right, welcome back, Wrench Nation. Hanging out with you guys from the East Valley Institute of Technology every Wednesday. It is our little mechanical gathering where we are honored. I tell you, every week we're honored to spend it with you guys, taking you on a journey, an automotive journey, Wrench Nation. talked about the website, WrenchNation.tv. If you guys dip in and out of the show, you can catch all kinds of goodness. How about a little Wayne Carini? Susie, Wayne Carini was just a humble, humble, humble individual. It was a great show. It was. Wayne Carini. Uh, last week, we had Gridlock Sam. Apparently, he coined the term Gridlock Sam. Uh, it's got a great book, No One at the Wheel. Uh, then we also dove into the toolbox economy of the modern day mechanic. All of that you can find. We invite you to uh, connect with us, wrenchnation.tv. And I will tell you guys, uh, lots going on in news. We always like to share some of what we think is, uh, well, some major changes. You know, we talked about that drone Susie, that drone out in uh, China, the E-Hang 184. Yeah. You know, if you're less than 200 pounds, that's not me. (laughs) You can jump into that little sucker and it'll take you, I think, about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I'd go in it. I'd watch you. (laughs) We'd videotape uh, Mrs. Susie Sockets up there. Uh, So we talked about that drone and we also talked about how Dubai... Dubai, you know, and I think it's a novelty at this point, but I will tell you, who do you think would be the first car manufacturer to get on board and launch officially a division for a flying car? Susie, which manufacturer? So I got to go with the obvious. It would be Tesla. Well, you think Elon... No, I think Elon Musk is going downstairs. Oh, that's right. He's going underground. He's boring. (laughs) But he's not literally boring. You guys know Elon Musk is exciting. You watch his Twitter feed, you got to take some medicine sometimes. But I will tell you, it's happening. Hyundai is launching their first flying car division. And that is huge. They are the first automaker to do that. Um, They're going to pursue that dream of a flying car. I don't know about the flying car. I don't think that my neighbor would enjoy just the ridiculous of noise. Those drones are noisy. That's true. They are. But that's kind of cool. It is. And, uh, you know, uh, as we t- uh, talked to Sam Schwartz, who was the uh, former New York City commissioner last week, he had said mid-century, it may be illegal to drive. Now, I can't even fathom that. Illegal to drive, but... It seems like this is it. We are going through such a revolution. I I don't know if I can equate this, Susie, to Mr. Henry Ford, the iconic Henry Ford, who literally took that assembly line and made it for the masses. I don't think we're seeing that. Elon Musk is crying with the Model 3 and, and so on. But these are some amazing, amazing times. Uh, Hyundai's Urban Air Mobility Division. Hyundai Urban Air Mobility. Man, that's like the government space force. So we might see a flying Santa Fe out there, huh? I don't know. It aims to provide innovative and smart mobility solutions 
that I've never seen or thought of. You know, I think it's just saying, hey, we have a division. We're working on it. Uh, of course, we're a long ways not only from a flying car, but you guys will agree, the autonomous. Now, tell yeah. us about... Now, Susie, you had a pretty good situation with an so autonomous. So check this out. I took my first autonomous car ride this morning into work. Oh, wow. Yes. Did you, have, you had a driver? I had a driver, so you have the driver there who can take over at any time, but my driver didn't have to take over not once. Were you nervous? No. What'd you Frank, do? I was super excited. So what'd you do with your little time in the so, back of So, you know, I, of course, I'm a talker. And so I, uh, <laughs> you know, I had some questions I asked. Were you nervous? No, you I were wasn't talking. nervous at all. All right. Frank, I've jumped out of planes three times, so I don't think an autonomous car is going to... Don't mess it's with It's going to fear me at all. But I got to tell you, it's a pretty cool technology. And um, you, the, the screen in front of you while you're riding, you get to see everything that the car sees. And the whole experience is if you were driving autonomously. The screen is so big, you can't see the traffic. All you can see is the screen. So you really can't see anything in front of you. And you said goodbye. I said goodbye. You didn't, you didn't have to pay? I didn't have to pay. I got, free, I got seven free rides. And if anybody wants to get on this wait list, all you got to do is download the Waymo app and go ahead and just fill out the information and put yourself on a wait list. Well, unless you like me, because I've been on that wait list for almost two years. <laughs> I don't know if they did a background check on me or something. When you told me you took a ride in this Waymo, immediately I said, wait a minute, man, I've been on this waiting list for 19 months. Yeah, I don't know when I put myself on the waiting list, but it happened just Monday. Did they have to interview you? No, it wasn't an interview. It was they a questionnaire. Just, I mean, you just put your what name What kind on. of questions? Tell the people, because this is fascinating. Yeah, what, what it did was they ask my you? first and last name, All right. my email address, easy, and my phone number. No. That's it. No questions no about questions. drugs? They didn't ask if you were on drugs no, or anything? No, they didn't. Now, when you actually do get accepted, you have to read the terms and conditions. Oh. Now, I think the first generation, you weren't able to talk to the driver, but this time around, the second generation, you can actually you can actually talk to the driver a little bit. And, <laughs> because um, the third generation, there will be no driver. That's right. But what was <laughs> neat was when I got to Desert Car Care to work, it has a little recording. You know, you've, you've reached your destination. Please, you know, please check the back seats or for any belongings that you may leave behind. And there's a screen that says, have a great day. You're at Desert Car Care of Chandler. Wow. Did... Well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking business. Maybe we can play a commercial or something. Would that be neat? That would be neat. Well, if you guys are interested, you can check it out. You know, the city of Chandler, uh, which is where our garage is based, of course, not too far from our studios here, uh, has codified their streets. Yes. Which means we're ready. Yes. My Waymo even took a U-turn, which was fabulous. It was just amazing to see that know. steering wheel turn well, by Well, there itself. you have it. Well, I tell you, what we're going to do today, we always like to take you guys on a journey with some pretty interesting guests. And here it is, another show. And I always start this off by saying, you, you guys have heard me say this, Susie, you and I both. We are truly honored because this is such an amazing journey that we get to share with you. And on today's show, uh, I have this wonderful book. This is a thick coffee it table thick. book. Lots of great picture pictures, I should say, inside the story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car racing series. Yeah, and if I could, if I could capture the facial expression that you made opening, I that, it was like a kid at Christmas. Because imagine you people back in the day trying to launch a series, get a bunch of crazy drivers together, sanction them. They all got to raise money because racing costs money. Yeah. 
Well, we are honored to have Mr. Mitch Bishop, who is the son of the founder, John, the legendary John Bishop, and of course, Mark Rothoff. And I hope I got Mark's name right. But uh, these gentlemen will be joining us. They are the authors of the IMSA 1969 to 1989, inside the story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car series. And and I'll just give you a couple of quotes. I want to tease you people because we got a quick moment before we go to break and we're going to bring these gentlemen on. Roger Penske has been quoted, I wouldn't be where I am today without John Bishop. Of course, Roger Penske. Uh, big dealership uh, race. Bobby Rahal, winner of the 87, 12 hours of Sebring. IMSA was more of a family atmosphere. If you had a problem, you could go to John, John Bishop, and he'd figure a way out. He would sort it out for you. This is back in the day of racing. Truly was like family. Right. You know, it, it, I got to be honest. It kind of reminds me of NHRA. I mean, John Force, JFR Racing, they're barbecue. I think John has still got that same barbecue from 1978. <laughs> and if you're lucky, he says, come on down. And he's got 100 fans, you know, uh, cooking up some chicken. That was racing back in the day. And I think to, to a certain perspective, it is today. So I want you guys to stay tuned. We are going to journey into the IMSA, International Motorsports Association. Um, that is an incredible series and how John Bishop built the world's greatest race series. And we're honored to have Mr. Mitch Bishop and Mark Rothoff. They're going to join us. I'm excited. You guys stay tuned. French Nation, next. Parts Authority Auto Parts Superstores, nationwide locations. You know, one of the problems that I can have working in my garage is parts aren't delivered on time. The quality isn't there. Well, guess what? Who's yelling at me? My clients, and they're likely not to come back. Well, the Parts Authority Auto Parts Superstores, amazing service, knowledgeable counter folks, a complete line of original equipment, parts that our customers deserve. If you're an installer, get on to partsauthority.com, check locations nationally near you partsauthority.com welcome back ranch nation frank and Susie, hanging out with you guys uh get on a facebook if you're not following us we appreciate uh hanging out with us we do our monday facebook lives from the garage you know we try to share uh some of the things that we're kind of dealing with uh in the garage mechanically so uh, you guys have spoken loud about that and we also invite you to check out instagram and all the other social media listen 50 years ago a new sanctioning body emerged at a pivotal moment in motorsports history racing cars was on the upswing it really was back in the day manufacturers had to stamp some horsepower and new tracks were being built all across the united states and imported cars from europe and japan were also flooding the market at the time and designers were pushing limits and drivers you know what drivers do race car drivers were looking for an opportunity to race for more than just a trophy. It truly was a competition. Uh, into this void stepped John Bishop with a fledgling organization called IMSA. And when I say fledgling, these things are not easy to start. There were a lot of challenges. And uh, John Bishop started off with IMSA, and we are honored to have his son, Mr. Mitch Bishop. Mitch, welcome to the show. Frank, it's uh, great to be on. Awesome, and we appreciate you holding for us. Um, an exciting time for racing. Take us back uh, uh, to what was uh, the uh, late 60s. Uh, what was the sentiment amongst uh, professionals at the time? And uh, Mr. John Bishop at the time, what, what motivated him to say, hey, you know what, let's start our own series? 
Well, it's important to understand that my dad was, at the time, the executive director of the SCCA, uh, and he had been with the SCCA since 1956. And he was the guy that had helped them usher in the era of professional car racing, road racing in this country. Uh, prior to that, uh, prior to 1963, the SCCA was pure amateur and very much um, religiously amateur. And they, they didn't allow their members to participate in car races for money. And that all changed in 1963 when um, they decided that they needed to, uh, you know, fight with uh, USAC at the time, who had a professional road racing series that they started in 1956. And um, eventually, long story short, the SCCA became the number one professional road racing sanctioning body with series like the Trans-Am, the Can-Am, and the Formula 5000 series in the late 60s, which my father, uh, you know, helped write the rules for and, and usher in. So, you know, per your preamble, the late 60s was truly a golden age for road racing in this country with those series. I mean, everybody remembers the Trans-Am and Can-Am series, and, and they were exciting. They were new. They drew drivers from Europe as well as the best from the U.S., um, and the SCCA was, was on an upswing. And uh, my father was um, essentially ousted from the SCCA in February of 69 at their... What was the dynamic, Mitch? I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'd like to get to that dynamic because it seems like uh, your dad, Mr. John Bishop, was actively involved. And give us a sense uh, of the politics at the time. Why was, uh, why was he ousted? What was going on? Well, um, the SCCA is set up as a nonprofit organization, and it's run by a board of governors. So getting anything done there was, was difficult. And the, the professional versus amateur fight was uh, deeply rooted, even within the SCCA, was deeply divided over the direction of the organization. And uh, so the politics were um, who's going to own and control the, the star children, if you will, of the of the organization, which were those series I just mentioned. And um, there was a, a group that wanted more autonomy from the Board of Governors, and um, they essentially forced my father out of the organization, expecting to, the, to then inherit control and more autonomous control of the professional racing series. That didn't end up happening. But um, the net of it was that my dad ended up without a job and uh, wondering what he was going to do next when two weeks later he got a phone call from Bill France, the founder of NASCAR, and Bill had the idea to start IMSA. It really was his idea, not my dad. And he asked my dad to fly down to Daytona Beach and, you know, drink some scotch, go fishing, smoke some cigars, and talk about racing. And that's what they did for three days. I don't think they went fishing, but <laughs> they, did, yeah. they, wow. did, they did drink some scotch. Yeah, let's uh, let's bring in Mark. Uh, Mark, are you uh, are you hanging? I'm here. I'm, Mark, uh, happy to be here. Hello, thank everybody. you, thank you, sir, for hanging with us. Of course, if yep. you're just joining the show, uh, we are discussing uh, the legendary John Bishop, how he built one of the world's greatest race series, IMSA. Uh, Mark, please help me with the last name. Ruffoff. Raffoff, that's oh, I got it right, Good Susie. Job, I was right? nervous. You I were nervous. nervous, Mark. You spent, uh, you, Mark. You spent quite a bit of time uh, in that IMSA family, uh, going way back to your teens in the seventies. What did you see back when it was uh, starting up? Uh, what was the energy back then? 
Uh, it was super exciting. I mean, Mitch alluded to it. Um, you know, new tracks were being built. The 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 IMSA concept by the even in the very early seventies was already something completely new to the industry. It attracted uh, the sportsman types, but it also and you mentioned it in your in your beginning is you know the, the world in this country needed a place for all these new imported cars to demonstrate their their technical abilities, and IMSA provided that place. You know, so not just Porsches and Ferraris, but BMWs and Datsuns and Hondas and Mazdas and all these new cars that began showing up in the U.S. in the seventies. Yeah, right, they demonstrated their performance and their abilities in IMSA racing. So John was very visionary in that. So it was really exciting because it was all this new stuff. As Mitch said, we had some of the best drivers even back then from Europe coming to race with factory teams from BMW and Ford in Europe and Porsche. And, you know, it was just really, really good in the sense that everything was new, exciting, and, you know... And different. Gentlemen, it was very different because prior to that, I mean, we didn't really have uh, European or Japanese markets. Correct. If If you think about it, in the 50s, American racing was built on American technology and American brands. So not until the 70s, and I think deep down John probably had a vision that even Bill France didn't have, that the timing of this could not have been better for the automotive industry and motorsports to open up a venue for all these new companies to show their stuff on the racetrack. Mitch, take us back uh, the Formula Ford race there at the Pocono International Raceway back in uh, 69 of October. That was the very first race. Give us some energy about the fan attendance and just the vibes of the fans. You know, if you think about they, they kind of came from a domestic, you know, uh, run of uh, Chevys and Fords. And tell us about that. Well, when IMSA got started, we had to decide what we were going to, what kind of show we were going to put on. And the initial idea was to run Formula Fords on ovals and road circuits, but a lot of ovals. And, um, uh, the reason we did that was because we didn't want to compete directly with the SCCA, who kind of ruled the roost at the time with the Trans Am and Can Am series. So um, our very first race was at, at Pocono in October of 69, and it was run on a 5 8 mile oval. They hadn't even built the big oval yet. And uh, we had a paltry crowd, I think, of about 360 people, um, one of my brothers sold tickets. Another brother uh, parked cars, and I ran. I was uh, in timing and scoring, <laughs> so it was really a family business. <laughs> well, wow. that's how it. That's how it starts. I mean, um, I think most of us uh, enthusiasts and fans alike uh, know that uh, it's a blood, sweat, and tears. So, with that said, I mean, it sounds to me like John Bishop was the kind of guy that could roll up sleeves, have a scotch. Uh, how did he attract these teams and racers, you know, to ultimately, you know, grow it from the Poconos? Uh, did he have a certain well, he, flair or way with uh, with drivers well, and racers? He, the, yeah, the the initial attraction was obvious, and that is money. I mean, we paid we paid prize money down to the last place. Um, but when the competitors showed up for their very first IMSA race, they noticed many other significant differences um, that were intended to be competitor friendly you know registration the vibe was uh that it was easy and simple and uh family-like um 
there was a pay window at after the end of the race where you could walk up to my mom and she'd be writing checks to people. <laughs> you gotta love that. Well, let me ask and, you guys uh, today. Today is a big corporate America, and it's. I mean, from a fan perspective, we see it. I mean, we still enjoy our racing, but. You don't really have that. <laughs> Mom's well, not. You know, I was going to say the best ideas are created over scotch and cigars. So I'm glad to see that the mistake wasn't made calling it the International Motor Scotch Association. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, another innovation that we did was um, in, instead of forcing the competitors to pull their uh, push their cars through tech inspection, we went to them. And we did tech inspection right where they were parked in the paddock. And that was something that we continued for quite some time. Right. So the, um, so, I so guess, the, you look, yeah. the, the, the vibe was different. Um, and that combined with the prize money, the guys all went home and told their friends about it and said, hey, you got to check this out. Um, for the next two years, we ran Formula Fords on ovals, which turned out to be a really bad idea. <laughs> and um, you know, we almost killed a couple of guys at Charlotte. Oh, oh no! There was yeah. some bad. There was some bad accidents at Talladega, simply because the tracks were faster than the cars. So imagine a pack of forty Formula Fords, all in one giant seething mass. You know, trying to draft each other and so on. So wrecks were inevitable. And so in 1971, we decided that we needed to pivot towards GT cars, and we picked. Uh, FIA Group 2 and Group 4 as the model, these guys only had two or three races they could race out a year. You know, Sebring, Daytona, and the 24 hours of Daytona, the 12 hours of Sebring, and the Watkins Glen race. And they really were looking for places to race. And as Mark said, new tracks were coming on board. The promoters wanted a show. There just wasn't enough product to go around. So the IMSA GT Series was born in 71, and, and um very pivotally, we, we secured Camel Cigarettes as a sponsor at the end of that year, and it became the Camel GT Series and took off like crazy. Well, that was going to approach that, the business side of, of how this was growing. Um, I believe that was uh, was at Reynolds uh, Tobacco, uh, and the yeah. Camel GT Series was born. Mark, did you see a big transition at that time? Did you just, you could feel this thing going in a direction that uh, not only attracted fans but that excitement uh track side uh, what was the feeling for you oh for the same for definitely the excitement just continued to grow camel provided the you know the product back then wasn't as uh vilified as maybe it is now but they provided this vehicle that attracted people um through their point of sales uh marketing and in, in the neighborhoods around the racetrack uh sponsorship print ads um, and it in turn attracted the tire companies champion spark club company the car companies numerous other industry uh, automotive industry related companies and so that incentive uh just helped the individual competitors that mitch mentioned that originally were kind of sportsman guys could actually begin setting up a business in road racing and function as a business and actually uh build and create cars for other competitors and then the whole thing began to snowball and, uh, you know, a lot of credit in motorsports in the world, uh, unfortunately, today, you got to say, is due to the, what the tobacco companies did worldwide, both Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds, yeah. Rothmans in Europe. It's, it's, uh, it was a big push, but it created that, um, that mass market consumer product uh, marketing program that, that brought people to the events. And you got to remember, there was no TV. There was no social media. So going to a race was a big deal, and people made 
big expeditions out of going for two or three days to Watkins Glen and camping or Daytona or Sebring for a week. And it was a real event, both for the participants and for the people that went to see them perform. So, And they had cool cars. I mean, we had the cool cars, and we still do today. And that's yeah. a big uh, selling point as well. So Camel was the international brand. We had the international car brands. It was a natural mix for both products, and uh, it lasted a long time. lasted until 1993 until the federal government restricted their involvement. So uh, that relationship was, was good, strong, and, and grew right up to 1973. It never really stopped. Yeah, I want you guys to stay tuned. We've got Mitch Bishop and Mark Ruffoff, uh, authors. Uh, in fact, you can catch this uh, wonderful book. A lot of my garage owners and uh, mechanics that listen to this show, this book is jam-packed with uh, the whole storyline inside the story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car racing series. This is a perfect book for your lounge where your clients come in and they can thumb through that. And I also would say uh, for the youngsters out there, this has got some uh, great history. I want you guys to stay tuned. We're going to find out about some of the leading race car uh, drivers at the time and uh, what were some of those battles like. You guys stay tuned. Ranch Nation next.
This is Wrench Nation. Nothing's wrong. Call or text your questions now. Who's gonna drive you home? 480-655-8870. Welcome back. Uh, Frank and Susie hanging out with you guys. I invite you to get on to wrenchnation.tv. We park all the shows there. And, of course, a big shout-out to our Saturday listeners on KFNX. You guys rock. We appreciate uh, a lot of you have messaged us uh, uh, whether it be on the website or through uh, Facebook. And, of course, 90.7, the neon. I uh, invite you guys, uh, part of our topic, uh, the International Motorsports Association. You can certainly get on to IMSA.com. You can find the schedule of the Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge, uh, as well as the International Motorsports Association. In general, they have the IMSA.tv and, of course, uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge. Uh, the two gentlemen that are responsible for one of the greatest, I think. I've already worn it out. It's tattered it a little <laughs> bit. This is a coffee table book with such great history. IMSA, 1969 to 1989. Inside the story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car racing series. Uh, the authors uh, have... Uh, with us, uh, Mitch Bishop and Mark Rothoff. Let's, uh, let's bring uh, both gentlemen on. Guys, are you there? Yes, yeah. sir. And Mark, I do apologize, man. I, this is something about the Fs. <laughs> so I uh, get a little tongue <laughs> twisted there. Yeah. It's okay. Yes, good deal. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the mechanics of uh, how these cars sort of transitioned. I know that the once Camel, the Camel GT series, uh, which sounds like that really launched it into a whole different uh, funding and excitement. Talk to us about the mechanics and the transition of how these cars were operating um, during that time. What was uh, what were the power plants? Who's that for? Me? Uh, let's start off, Mark. If you want to answer that, okay. that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you. So you know, initially people just bought like a car, you put a roll bar in it, and you went and raced it. Well, obviously that didn't last too long because I think <laughs> well, they're still doing that. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> well, so they want to hot rod it. Whatever the manufacturer, Porsche said it would do this. The average American Porsche guy would go, no, it's going to do a lot more when I get done with it. So, well, like a Bruce Canapa, right? Bruce Canapa. Yeah, Bruce, yeah, yeah. Bruce is a perfectly good example. Yeah, of that. I know Bruce well. He's uh, he knows what that's all about. So basically, in a very rapid uh, time frame. The two biggest developments that probably occurred, and these were all production-based cars, were tire development and aerodynamics. Wings, spoilers, splitters, fatter tires, no tread on the tires, work by temperature instead of tread. So all of a sudden, that increased the grip, increased the downforce, and of course, to make it go fast, you needed more horsepower. So between probably the early 70s and the mid-70s, we went from two and 300 horsepower to six and 700 horsepower. And, wow. uh corresponding technology to keep it on the ground and on the road and subsequently better drivers who had the ability to drive them right. they weren't easy to drive back then and obviously that escalated to today where it's even more uh, more advanced obviously so you know the things that happened were really you know uh, you know safety improved the cars went faster the tracks improved because they need better barrier systems but if you look in the book and you look at some of the tracks where we race today and race thin, your jaw will drop because Big difference. You know, a lot of places there was yeah. no barriers. If you went off the road, you're in the woods someplace, you know, hit a tree, which wasn't good. So a lot of things changed all at the same time and very quickly. You know, people learned stuff very rapidly and applied it very rapidly, and everybody else copied it, and then it got moved up another notch the next year. So right, right. it was a very exciting time technically, and it always has been. This kind of racing is very technically oriented. Right. As uh, as that power and uh, speed increases, you sort of 
I mean, that's the science of it. I think prior to that, it was just like, okay, give me a big block and uh, let's go fast. And mm-hmm. things were not only dangerous, but uh, we really couldn't go as fast as we could in a safe manner. Speaking of which, Mitch, talk to us about, um, you had mentioned that coming from SCCA, uh, sort of a, uh, you know, ending to a new beginning, joining up with uh, Big Bill France, uh, senior there. What were some of the rules that Mr. John Bishop looked at in changing, and and was that because of safety or primarily to go faster? Well, I mean, um, Mark did a great job of summarizing some of the technical changes that happened. Um, You know, you layer turbocharging on the top of that, and uh, it gets even more complicated to to regulate a series and to make it even. My dad was enamored of, you know, the classic weight versus displacement curve to keep the competition relatively even, um, even back in the early 60s. And he, he brought that with him to IMSA, and that worked pretty well um, until we got to turbocharging, which was a lot harder to regulate back then because you couldn't measure boost accurately while the car was running around the track. And um, so that became a, a, a technical challenge once turbocharging was allowed into the into the series but um yeah i mean uh the safety improvements that were made include things like we learned unfortunately quickly that uh, aluminum roll cages for instance weren't weren't that safe and so we mandated steel roll cages at one point in in the early 80s um we um you know we learned a lot about fuel cells we learned a lot about you know, uh, making track safer with more runoff area and better barriers. And um, those went along with the rule changes to kind of even out the competition. Porsche was the first to come up with a customer car program that they essentially built race cars that rolled off the factory in Stuttgart. And they rolled off the factory race-ready and encouraged a lot of sportsmen drivers to come into the series because they could race at the front of the grid with a with a car that just had rolled off the factory. And yes, Porsche dominated in various eras, but it really also forced innovation from other manufacturers and and constructors to, you know, how can we make a car um, that's competitive with the Porsches? And it also forced IMSA to come up with innovative new ideas like the All American GT cars in 76, 77 that won the championship that were two frame chassis, but they looked and acted and felt and tasted and smelled like like American muscle cars. Right. And so um, my dad was very concerned about giving the, the, the uh, sportsman racer the opportunity to compete effectively and cost effectively with the European cars that were coming over that were expensive. To buy. I mean, the rich guys bought the the 935s, and there were guys in the U.S. that were building two-frame Monzas and Corvettes that were very fast and very competitive with the Porsches. Yeah, you talk about two extremes there. Uh, give us an idea. What would uh, what would it cost uh, back in the day there in the 70s there to sort of uh, fund uh, a vehicle uh, and, and race? Well, I mean, you could buy when the, when the 935s came out. You could buy 
Well, Carrera RSR, first of all, in, in 1974, you could buy one for thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, which, you know, I wish I'd bought a fleet of them because they'd be worth millions right yeah. now. But, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, a 935, it started to get pretty expensive. You know, the cars were anywhere from one hundred fifty to $200,000 rolling off the, the production line. Uh, right. But, you know, with a with some engineering uh, innovation and uh, skill, you could build a, could take a Corvette, build a two-frame version of the Corvette, as John Greenwood did, uh, with very advanced bodywork, which became more and more wild as we, we went forward. Um, my dad was always, and, and Imps and Mark was there by the time. The, the rules makers were, we were very interested in um, sort of making it the American guys building two frame cars competitive with the aerodynamic stuff that was coming out of Europe. Yeah. Mark, uh, as a, as, as someone that's, uh, deeply involved today uh you are currently involved heavily with him so is that correct that's correct yes give us an idea of what you see the biggest difference uh today um i know that may be a broad question but going back to the mid 70s and what we have today by the way of safety i really want to tap that uh john force uh, obviously was very uh responsible for a lot of safety uh movement in a positive manner for nhra uh, we had Will Buxton on uh, recently who uh, was calling in from Italy and talked about uh, the race out in Europe that that uh, we lost a driver tragically. Tell us about the big differences uh, regarding safety, as you see it from two the 70s. Things, two things. One is uh, control. The advent of electronics, uh, which really came from the car manufacturers and the, the road car world, the ability to control the power plants, the ability to have sensors on the car that tell you what's going on with the car as it's happening and even transmitting it back to the pit lane so you can see problems developing. That and material science. Um, you know, everything today is made out of carbon fiber. Right. In the early 70s, nobody knew what carbon fiber was. I can remember when teams for the first time discovered the material they used to make the tiles for the space shuttle and realized that was the best way to shield the driver's feet from the exhaust heat from a front-engine car was to line the inside of the pedal box with space shuttle tiles. And that was like, wow, the guy's feet's not burning anymore. So it's come a long way. So engineering and uses of materials and controls by electronics have made it safer, much more efficient. I mean, the power and speed developed today on skinnier tires and uh, you know, much less explosive fuels and using a lot less fuel. And the speeds are just as great, if not greater, than they've ever been. And the lightness of the cars, because of material, have made it a lot safer. If you're going 200 miles an hour in a car that weighs a ton and a half and you hit something, it's a much bigger hit than if you're driving in a car that weighs 1,800 pounds or not even a ton. Right. So those kind of things are probably the biggest thing over 50 years that has changed which was, you know, we started with original sheet metal unibody cars, um, and now we have carbon fiber and uh, aluminum steel hybrid chassis, which like a lot of road cars are, Porsches are part aluminum, part steel. So weight and efficiency and electronic controls of the systems have made them much better in every category of performance. So technology. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, now, it, it all comes out. The science, yeah. Exploded, exploded literally in, in a couple. I mean, nowadays we do, all of our cars go to wind tunnels for pre-evaluation to have wind tunnel maps. All the engines are pre-dynoed on inertial dynos. Um, uh, you know, we, we do a lot more in advance to um, to do what John Bishop, having been there, had a personal I don't know, he had a sixth sense that was really amazing of what needed to be done to what kind of a package to make it do what it needed to do to make it competitive and be a good show. Well, nowadays, the technology is so complicated, you just can't use that sixth sense anymore. No, it has to be measured. It has to be measured. Yeah, Yeah. no doubt. So, yeah, if yeah. you guys are just joining us, I want you to stay tuned. We've got the authors of uh, IMSA 1969 to 1989. Uh, we are honored to have uh, Mitch Bishop, uh, the son of John Bishop, and uh, a great book, uh, of course, Mark Rothoff as well, the inside story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car racing series, IMSA. I want you guys to stay tuned. Ranch Nation, next. Bolt-on Technologies, automotive software solutions. Auto repair shops that have bolt-on technology software provide customer vehicle condition reports, including photos and text, real-time digital reports, multi-point inspections, estimates, and repair information at your fingertips. Info at BoltOnTechnology.com. Welcome back, Ranch Nation. Hanging out with you. Uh, of course, Susie and I always enjoy every week. Uh, get on to RanchNation.tv and catch a whole slew of shows. We've got over 170 shows there. Uh, Mark Rothoff has spent most of his adult life as part of the IMSA family, dating back to, uh, well, back to the 70s in his teens. And uh, the relationship continues uh, as his leadership role there at the new IMSA championship, as well as Mitch Bishop, the son of John Bishop, uh, who actually created the uh, IMSA Series inside the story of how John Bishop built the world's greatest sports car racing series is the book. And I highly advise you guys get on Amazon. Uh, both Mitch and Mark uh, teamed up to write out a wonderful collection, a very wonderful book uh, going from the history. Uh, and uh, we invite the gentleman back here. Welcome back, guys. Thanks, Frank. Uh, I got to ask you, I'll start off, Mitch. Uh, chapter uh, Chapter 10. In fact, the oh, book boy, is. Everybody I know. Don't we all got to ask? <laughs> now you teased us because the chapter ten title was "Bad Boys, Drugs, Money, and Racing." Now you know we got to ask. What was that all about? Well, um, look. I mean, racing costs money, and um, in the late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, costs were escalating, and uh, the sport attracted, in some cases. Uh, certain nefarious kinds of characters that made money, let's just say, um, creatively. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the stories about John Paul Sr. and uh, the rest of the crew there um, were, you know, famous from the day. And I think it would have been a disservice to publish a book about IMSA without covering the, those stories. So, um that's what we did in that chapter. Uh, the Whittington brothers, um, John Paul, uh, made money by by selling drugs, and they were big-time drug dealers. And they were also fantastic race car drivers, and um, they spent a lot of money. They threw a lot of money around. Uh, the Whittingtons bought Road Atlanta at one point, so they owned the track. And they owned, you know, a race team with Porsche 935s. All three Whittington brothers uh, drove at the Indy 500 at one point. Um, 
John Paul Sr. Uh, was uh, a financial guy, actually, from Wall Street that somehow got into the drug trade. But he, um, all along the, the way, was a, a amateur racer with the SCCA and started going IMSA racing and started pouring a lot of money into his efforts there. Right. Uh, Mark, we talk about, uh, I wanted to switch gears. Mark, uh, Mark, if we can get to you. Uh, Bobby Rahal is quoted in the book, IMSA was more of a family atmosphere. If you had a problem, you can go to John and he'd figure it a way out. He would sort it out for you. He would really listen to you. The connection between the entrance, the drivers, and management was friendly, open, and warm. Bobby Rahal, of course, a winner of the 87 12 Hours of Sebring, 81 24 Hours of Daytona, and, of course, uh, 86 uh, Indy 500. And we can't leave this out. Two-time champ, car champion, 86-87. Bobby Rahal, I remember watching him. Uh, exciting driver. Uh, as uh, IMSA grew, Mark, lots of great drivers over the years. Yeah, phenomenal. Both uh, domestic and uh, you know foreign import guys that came over here and made their living here, like Derek Bell and Brian Redman and John Fitzpatrick. And Bob Wallach and Hans Stuck and, uh, you know, the guys from all over the world came here to race because this was the place to race. It was the best drivers with the coolest cars on the most diverse tracks. You know, Bobby Ray Hall was racing with us in Formula Atlantic and things in the 70s, progressed to 935s and then GTP cars and then Indy cars. And he's involved today because his company manages and runs BMW's factory GT program in the United States with uh, Ray Hall Letterman Racing. So... There's an example of a guy who uh, was the son of a club racer, an SCCA racer, just as Al Holbert was the son of an SCCA racer. And uh, they made their entire career lives and businesses around racing, and all of them uh, spent a significant time developing their skills in all of those areas in IMSA. And that's what made IMSA so cool was these guys came, they came as race car drivers and ended up being successful businessmen in the automotive industry as well through their involvement in racing. And right. they really, there's a lot of them. It's too many to mention. Hurley Haywood, probably the most successful endurance sports car driver in history, uh, is a product of, of IMSA completely. Always stayed in sports cars. He did go to Indy and a couple other other types of racing, but was predominantly a Porsche uh, BMW Jaguar driver uh, in sports cars. So there's so many great names in the sport that kind of cut their teeth and made their careers in IMSA over the years, and some of them for a long, long time. And uh, that's what's another cool thing that John created was that environment that enabled these people to achieve their potential. Right. And what comes to mind as well is a young female racer, Lindsay James. We've had her on the show. She is such an amazing spirit. And, I I, I mean, if you look at it at the time, women in racing, I mean, that was uh, just kind of getting off. And Lynn St. James, of course, uh, uh, was a pioneer and a a tough, tough competitor uh, as a Ford factory driver. Correct, yeah. Do you find... She's the only woman to have ever won a Camel GT race solo by herself, ever. And convincingly, not because everybody broke or crashed in front of her. She beat him. She competed. Nice. Yeah, she, she competed. competed and competed at the top level in road racing for Ford for many, many years. Indy as well. Um, you know, just a, a really wonderful person on top of it. Well, and today she's doing so much, uh, not only for the industry, but for a lot of the youngsters that are coming up uh, yeah. as technicians or drivers or designers. Uh, yeah. Great gal for sure. And, and many, many of the automotive community, as we know, we always say here, you get the automotive community together. We do two things. We can run the show, raise money, and race. We know this. Yeah. Now, I got to ask you, I ask all of our guests uh, from Craig Jackson to uh, you name it, 
Where do you think car culture is going? You know, we see all of this news about how youngsters may just not have the interest. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'll start you with know, you, a Mitch. Bit of that. At yeah. the beginning of the show, you guys were talking about you know autonomous vehicles, flying vehicles, you know electrification. It's crazy to think about. It. Yeah, it's, yeah. All this stuff is going on, but you know what? There's still something about that noisy, fire-breathing, yep. smelly. 750 horsepower on the ground thing, whether it's a dragster or you mentioned John Force. I mean, I don't care if you like cars or not. If that doesn't blow your socks off. <laughs> you ain't kidding. I don't know what will. You, you know, ain't kidding. Alive. Knee-rattling, so, bone-shaking. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, I, I agree. The visceral part of the automobile will not go away. It may reduce itself in time because of technology, but I think there's always going to be that. That uh, that need or that desire, to well, that attraction, absolutely, that yeah. extreme in whatever venue it is, do its thing, you know. Right, right. Well, like gentlemen, the difference between a, a Piper Cub and a Boeing seven forty seven or a B fifty two, there's a big difference there. They're both airplanes, but you didn't mention. <laughs> wait a minute, you, you you didn't mention the F. Uh, is it the F thirty five Raptor? That's a yeah, no, yeah that I, jet is. Yeah. You see that thing going straight up. That uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's a perfect <laughs> example. You're right. Yeah, so that's what I think is the culture is going to change, and what we deal with every day will change. But the ability to see the very best and the ultimate level of performance, whatever it takes to do that, I still think there'll be a place for that. Like I said, fire breathing, noisy, smelly. Really, really fast car. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt, <laughs> gentlemen. It was an honor to have you on, spending time with us. Of course, Mitch Bishop and Mark Rothoff. Uh, please check out the book IMSA 1969-89, Inside Story of How John Bishop Built the World's Greatest Sports Car Racing Series, and that is IMSA. You can find IMSA's uh, information and, of course, uh, all of their goings ons. Uh, IMSA dot com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining Ranch Nation. Thank you for having us on. Yeah. Great show. Yeah, I think so. And I and I I the book had me, you know, I've we've had several authors on in the past, but what I really liked about this book was the pictures. I know, I was gonna say <laughs> I the mean, illustrations I, to, are I don't mean gorgeous. to sound yeah. rudiment and some of you guys are like, Oh, Frank, you're so simple, but it truly does take you there with phenomenal photos. And and the relationship with Bill France Senior, who had you know, he had NASCAR going and, you know, so it, it, it was an amazing time and all of this coming about where here we are today. Without it, what would racing look like today? Yeah, but that's what makes it a great coffee table book or a lobby book because of the illustrations. Well, not, yeah. And, and you know, we like I said, guys, if you're listening, we always ask our guests. We don't believe it. Susie, we don't believe that car culture is going away. We just I don't, don't believe so. it. There are too many people with... Uh, whether they're just, you know, tinkering in the garage and they go to car shows for fun. I see what the look is like with a lot of youngsters. Yeah, there's still enthusiasm out yeah, there. Yeah, no doubt. So, as always, we appreciate you guys uh, hanging out with us every single week. We are just grateful and elated. I think this is show 174 or something. Yeah. Uh, and I invite you guys to get on to uh, WrenchNation.tv. I can't mention it enough. And I've seen a lot of you come in with your emails. And we are honored, truly honored. We have a new, uh, we, uh, I can't speak, I get excited. A weekly newsletter. Weekly. weekly. It's simple. We're not spamming you. We're not selling you penny stocks. 
get onto the weekly newsletter, put your email, and come hang with us. Uh, got some great information. And also, I have a special edition. was honored to spend time in North Carolina at the ASTE. It's a big uh, technical trade show. We had a technician, automotive technician podcast. Uh, and we had a youngster that just opened up his garage in March of 19. And so that's about a 16-minute deal. Uh, you can find it now. It's on a Wrench Nation YouTube, but I will upload that in the podcast soon. So as I tell you every week, man, be safe, hug each other, and never forget to hug a mechanic. Now, what's on WrenchNation.tv? There's a billion websites out there. Well, there's a ton of nice shows I think you guys will enjoy. We know how it is. I mean, you got three to five seconds to listen to anything. Y'all got ADD. <laughs> Susie? Yes, sir. Am I lying? You're not lying. People don't have attention anymore. So I'm just going to tell you right up front, we know this, we understand. Some of you are already gone because you just, oh, got to get over there. Next. You capture our attention, though. Well, WrenchNation.tv, I mean, you can catch... Leave it to Beaver's Tony Dow. We had a 50-year reunion with the Corvair. Yeah. 50 years that car came back in his life. Yes. Now, here's a... I get excited about this community situation. Open change. Vehicle donations making a difference. There's a organization that has uh, donated uh, north of 6,000 cars on the East Coast. And last week, Noor Daoud, Palestinian drift racer from Ramallah. Do you know what it's like growing up in Ramallah, Palestine? I don't even know where that's at. It's in a very volatile area of the okay. world. Like people are trying to just eat for it. I mean, it's tough. And she is out there breaking the barriers. But that's all on WrenchNation.tv. And with that, I will invite you because we're all family up in here. 